Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Professor Christopher Hookway. We'll be talking about his new book, The Pragmatic Maxim, Essays on Purse and Pragmatism, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Chris is a professor of philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Charles Sanders Peirce was the founder of the philosophical tradition known as pragmatism. He's also the proponent of a distinctive variety of pragmatism that has as, it, as its core a logical rule that has come to be known as the pragmatic maxim. Now, according to this maxim, the meaning of a concept or a proposition or a hypothesis is ultimately to be defined in terms of the sensible and practical effects it would produce in the course of experimental action. Now, that is, of course, a crude articulation. But according to Peirce, the view of meaning that the maxim articulates has vast philosophical implications. Peirce's pragmatism is at once anti-skeptical and fallibilist, verificationist and inferentialist, and realist. Now that sounds like a motley crowd of philosophical commitments. So let's turn to the interview to see how they all hang together. Hello, Chris Hookway. Hello, Bob. Good to how are you doing? You. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Today, my guest on New Books in Philosophy is Christopher Hookway. He's just published a book titled The Pragmatic Maxim, Essays on Purse and Pragmatism. The book is published with Oxford University Press. And as many listeners will know, Chris works in a broad range of philosophical areas, including epistemology, philosophy of language, metaphysics, and the history of 20th century philosophy. But one of the themes that ties all of this work together is an ongoing and developing interest in Charles Sanders' purse and in pragmatism more generally. This new book includes 11 chapters, and each is dealing with an aspect of purse's pragmatism and its relation to deep philosophical questions that are still with us today. Purse emerges from Chris's book, a dynamic and strikingly contemporary philosopher with uh, a great deal to contribute to uh, contemporary debates. But before we get into all the details, um, Chris, why don't you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, perhaps I I can say something about my interests in Perth and my interests in philosophy. I think my, my, my work in philosophy, and I suspect in that case quite a bit of my life, has been taken over by Perth for 20, 30, maybe more years now. Um, I, I, I was, when I first became interested in Peirce, that was a time at which it really wasn't a very respectable interest to have, you know, when, when Peirce, and particularly pragmatism, were things that were, were areas of philosophy that many people didn't take all that seriously. Mm-hmm. And I've really very much enjoyed seeing philosophy become a lot, uh, 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 seeing pragmatism become 
much more prominent in philosophy over the last few years. Mm -hmm. I started uh, my interest in Peirce through being taught to, well, being, uh, by being set to read C.I. Lewis's Mind and the World Order when I was a, an MA student. And this really impressed me when I first started reading it. And I think it was the footnotes and other references in that book that led me to go and, and find some Peirce and start reading that. And I think that's really provided the foundation for most of my work over the years. Excellent. Um, so why don't we turn then to uh, the book uh, proper. Um, but one thing I wanted to uh, start us off with is I wanted to ask you to, 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 to tell us a little bit about um, Peirce's personality or maybe even uh, uh, Peirce's uh, biography um, because Peirce strikes me as one of uh, those philosophers, there, there are several we could name, uh, for whom it strikes me that the, the biography matters, that the man in a way uh, uh, matters and, and his personality um, for those who, who, who know his writings, there, there are a lot of stray autobiographical remarks in the midst of all the philosophy. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the about, about this figure, he's 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 kind of infamous for being a difficult character, isn't he? I think that's true. Um, maybe I can start by talking about a, a, a bit about his history. His father was Benjamin Peirce, a very famous leading mathematician in the United States, uh, and the son was recognized as a. As something of a genius or presented by his father as something as a genius from the beginning. And I think from the beginning, Peirce had a pretty high opinion of his own philosophical abilities and how important his achievements were. Um, he, he began by studying chemistry as a, as a, as a in, sorry, I lost that. Um, after studying philosophy in um, the United States, in, in Boston, at Harvard, uh, he went to the, uh, the, the graduate school in order to study chemistry. And I think he often thought of himself actually as a physicist or as a, a scientist as much as an active philosopher. He was a difficult man. He had a high opinion of him. Um, his uh, career... He, he was somebody, I think, who was seen as destined for a great career in the future. And it didn't really happen as his career went. Um, That's an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it probably is. I mean, he, he had a, a great start to his career in that he, had, he, he was given a lectureship in logic at Johns Hopkins when the first graduate school in the, in the United States was set up at Johns Hopkins. And he stayed there for five or six years. And then it all began to fall apart. And Dewey was in fact a student there, I think, at the time at which Peirce was teaching there. Right. But it started falling apart because to begin with, his marriage uh, broke up. Uh, then it seems as though, from what we know, he lived out of wedlock with a woman, not his wife. Right. And I think this was probably at a time at which having a, a bad moral character could be a serious problem for someone's academic career. 
And in fact, what seems to have happened, and I don't really, uh, I know there is rumours about the details of what happened, but I'm not confident in, in exactly what the details were. What actually, what, what's supposed to have happened is that they actually shut the logic down, uh, the, sorry, they shut the philosophy or logic department down in Johns Hopkins. And having done that, they set up a new department of logic in the department, only with one fewer member than it had <laughs> before. And it seems to have been understood from then on that he was unemployable with any within a serious academic department. At least that's we're told, but the, there's, there's a fair amount of con controversy about what actually happened. After that, he and his new wife moved to Delaware, to a large house in Delaware, and first spent most of his time developing his own philosophical ideas in manuscripts. There are many thousands of manuscripts that are kind of sad, people like me spend their time reading and uh, and trying to understand. Um, and he, from then on, his, his life didn't go well. There, there was a fair amount of injury. Sorry, there was a fair amount of illness, I think. Um, and he was impoverished. Uh, he, he had great difficulty finding any sort of work. People like William James often provided support for him. And that... And, and that made it possible for him to do philosophy really up to the end of his life in 1914. But he was a difficult man. People who were taught by him described him as the kind of teacher who delighted in impressing his students or showing his students just how clever he is, rather than being somebody that actually helped the students to make progress. But I don't fully know what the details are. Right. There is a um, uh, some letters that we have from John Dewey written at the time that Dewey was a student in one of Peirce's logic classes, which um, uh, Dewey just complains that, um, you know, I'm taking this class with this guy named Peirce and uh, he seems really smart, but, you know, this is not what I'm interested in. This is not what got me interested in philosophy. Um, it seems too uh, mathematical and, and not philosophical enough, which I, I could imagine would be... Uh, um, not a uh, an, an inapt thing to say about uh, what one might expect from a character like Peirce uh, in in the classroom. Right, that makes sense. Right. Um, so why don't we then uh, 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 turn more squarely to the book? Um, so uh, to begin at the beginning, that is then um, uh, whatever pragmatism the term has come to mean. Um, uh, in the intervening uh, decades, 100 years or more. Um, it was originally proposed by Peirce. It was originally, uh, and the term itself was coined in English uh, by Peirce. It's supposed to, I guess, at the time to have had some Kantian um, uh, pedigree to it. Um, but I take it that Peirce first introduced pragmatism as the name of a logical principle or what he sometimes, I think, calls a methodological uh, rule um, or uh, an idea about meaning. Um, could you tell us about the pragmatic maxim and, and how Peirce understood it and how Peirce understood pragmatism? Sure. Um, first, I think you're, you're right that Peirce saw pragmatism as a logical rule. The, maxim of pra the pragmatic maxim was a logical rule. Uh, and he introduced this 
for the first time, although although without actually using the word pragmatism, uh, in a lecture called How to Make Our Ideas Clear, uh, a paper that he wrote in 1878. The, at, the, at the beginning of that article, um, Hearst introduces the maxim as, well, he says that, sorry, I've lost this a little bit. Uh, the, the paper, How to Make Our Ideas Clear, is the sequel to a more general discussion about how logic should be done. Um, and at the beginning of the paper, How to Make Our Ideas Clear, he says that once we start doing logic in the way that Peirce wants to do it, the first question we have to address is how to make our ideas clear. Previous logicians, people like Leibniz and Descartes, had, thought, had, had had the idea that we can clarify concepts by looking for ideas that are clear and distinct. And this was seen as the fundamental concept to make use of in getting clear about the contents of of propositions and concepts. Uh, the, pragma the pragmatic maxim was offered by Peirce as a better maxim for clarifying concepts, something would actually that would actually provide a complete clarification of the content of particular concepts and propositions. Uh, I can say something about why Peirce thought that it was so important to have a rule of this kind. Uh, yes, that would be great. Yeah. In his, in his in his work in logic, I think there were at least three reasons he had for wanting an, a clear an, an account of what it is for a proposition to be clear or for a concept to be clear. One will be familiar to philosophers who know about logical positivism. Uh, one of the things that Peirce wanted to do was show was have a kind of rule that would enable us to rule out as meaningless or as without serious content, various philosophical ideas that he thinks are harmful. So when he was being critical of Kant's philosophy, for example, what, well, actually, sometimes he described his own philosophy as what Kant would have believed if he could have gotten rid of the idea of a thing in itself. Right. Uh, and I think that, that Peirce thought that one thing he could do with his ma pragmatic maxim is a, have a reason for thinking that the idea of a thing in itself is a is of no significance or of no cognitive significance for the kinds of things that Peirce was wanting to do. A second reason he wanted such a, a clarification is that there were Im important concepts, important philosophical concepts that are controversial and problematic. Uh, and for the rest of Peirce's writings, I think he, he thought it was important that we get clear about these problematic concepts. Perhaps the most important of these is the concept of uh, sorry. The most important of these is the concept of reality. And in fact, uh, Peirce's claims about truth were, were often expressed in the context of giving an account of what it is for something to be real. Mm -hmm. um, and this was an important part of what was going on. I think the third reason he thought he needed a way of clarifying hypotheses was that when he made, when he carried out inquiries, when he he gave his view about how we should acquire knowledge of the world, for example, he thought that we should use the method of science, uh, and he had some very definite views about what the method of science was like, uh, and I think he thought that in order to apply the method of science, in order to evaluate 
hypotheses or propositions uh, in a, a properly scientific way, then we need to have clarity about what the contents of those hypotheses are. We need to have the information that helps us to see how to test hypotheses experimentally or how to evaluate propositions and ideas. So for all these reasons, Peirce thought that he needed a way of giving a of getting complete clarity about the contents of propositions, hypotheses, concepts, and the like. So how, tell us what the maxim is then. That, that, that under, that I think that does a very nice job of explaining the motivations. I mean, it seems obvious in a way and uh, uh, undeniable that uh, if we want to do philosophy proper, if we want to do any kind of inquiry properly, uh, and we're convinced that the proper methodology is um, – uh, scientific, insofar as we're talking about uh, hypotheses as being the 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 vehicles with which uh, or the, the the instruments that we are uh, uh, by means of which we are inquiring, um, seems uh, 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 correct to say that uh, getting the meanings of of these things, uh, the, the 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 terms and the concepts and the propositions themselves, clear uh, is crucial. Um, so, what was what was Peirce's recommendation? How do we make our ideas clear? Okay, well, I, I, I may have to, to give you a brief quotation from this. That would um, be great. Um, there's a formulation of the rule that Peirce gave, I think, for the first time, probably in 1877, and which he returned to whenever uh, he was, well, no, let me, let me, let me say, it's a, the, sorry, there was a formulation that he made use of in, from 1877, and he made use of it nearly every time when he wanted to tell us what the content of the maxim was. And this is, in fact, a formulation that was probably accepted by William James, maybe by C.I. Lewis, maybe quite a lot of other pragmatists as well. But in later work, Peirce saw, saw that it was one of his aims to actually give a much better formulation as this standard one. So the original form goes like this. He says, consider which effects which might conceivably have practical bearings we conceive the object of our conception to have. Then our concept of those effects is the whole of our conception of the object. It's not an easy passage to, to pass or, or fully to understand. Um, it's certainly not fully clearly formulated, because I think one of the ways in which Peirce's pragmatism differs from that of William James, for example, is that they have rather different understandings of what practical bearings are. Right. Um, there, were, there were some later formulations of it that Peirce made use of in 1903 and 1905, and these tend to be, I think, more interesting than the, that, initial, that initial one that I gave. But I, I won't read out these further versions fully, but I think I can give you a, a fairly clear idea of, of how it's meant to work. Sure. It seems to be idea that it, it seems to be Percy's idea after 1903 that we can clarify a proposition, let's say, for example, or a concept, by seeing how, in different circumstances, you know, in different contexts, its truth would make a difference to what we ought to do, that somehow or other, you know, if there's no context, if there is no context 
in which the truth of a proposition could ever make a difference to what we ought to do, then the proposition has no uh, has no cognitive significance. And I think mm -hmm. that for scientific purposes, we can clarify a proposition, he thinks, completely by identifying how, in different contexts, its truth will actually make a difference to what it would be rational for us to do. It could actually make a difference to our practice, to what we think, to how we ought to act. Right. Um, and so uh, this maxim then, at least as you, you've, you've formulated it in, 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 or you've, you've presented it in Peirce's uh, later formulations, um, does seem to uh, suggest um, that Peirce's understanding of the maxim might be closer to, um, I know that in the book you have a whole chapter about the uh, the, the 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 controversy and in fact the 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 rage almost that Peirce uh, felt uh, towards William James's appropriation of pragmatism and particularly the pragmatic maxim. But it seems as if um, if Peirce's idea is that um, the 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 meaning of a of a hypothesis or the 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 content of a a concept has to do with how it suggests we ought to act. Um, then that that might be something that uh, suggests uh, more affinity between the the Persian formulation and the Jamesian one that Peirce was so um, disappointed with. Can you can you help us maybe get a little bit clearer on on Peirce's idea uh, with respect to this maxim uh, by talking a little bit about the contrast that Peirce saw between his version of pragmatism and William James's? Well, let's try to compare Peirce and James here. When, if we look at James's lectures on pragmatism, uh, there, I mean, he, he accepts, I think, the initial formulation of, of Peirce's. Um, but he seems, to say, he, he seems to say that the meaning of a proposition there, or the, the meaning of a concept or idea, uh, is to be explained in terms of, it's gone, <clears throat> sorry, of its consequences, or perhaps of the effects, the effects that it's had. Uh, and James seems to think that we can make this a matter of um, effects of, of any kind that we might come up with. I think when Peirce is applying his maxim, what well, there are two significant features that we can point to. Um, both of them are, are, are components of the fact that Peirce sees pragmatism as a doctrine which is incompatible, which is, sorry, Peirce thought that you couldn't be a pragmatist of the kinds that he wants to be without being a realist. Indeed, mm -hmm. he said that pragmatism goes together with realism of a somewhat extreme stripe, was the right. way he liked to put it. Uh, and I think that Peirce thought that James, for example, when he was uh, was making use of what he called the principle of Peirce in this context, uh, has a has a view which has a, a much more nominalist kind of character. And Peirce's view of the world is one I think that thinks that well, it's very anti-Humean, in the sense that he thinks that there are real laws, you know, that the real facts about what made something happen real laws about the, the, you know, the real connections that there can be between different kinds of events. Uh, and I think that Peirce would think that in many cases, when we apply the maxim in order to clarify a concept, we're likely to be ending up 
by identifying the laws or rules that it conforms to, uh, rather than to particular effects or things of that kind. So we understand a concept by un or we understand a proposition by understanding the laws or patterns that it coheres to, and then we can apply that to particular cases. Right, and it seems as if, um, if I'm remembering uh, uh, the, the, this aspect of, of the history of, of, of pragmatism correctly, it seems as if James um, was much more uh, tempted by a, you say nominalist, but we might also say sort of subjectivist interpretation, maybe even psychologized interpretation of the maxim, where it seems as if for James, the practical effects of a proposition um, or included among the practical effects of a, of a proposition or a hypothesis are the sort of the psychological implications of holding it or accepting it, right? That is, um, especially in the will to believe doctrine, where if the religious belief has a certain kind of impact on your comportment towards your life, um, that's a kind of evidence in its favor. And that's, in a way, that's what the the, the, the religious hypothesis means is sort of those positive psychological effects. Is, is, is this right? Yes, ab absolutely. And I think this is connected with the fact that for Peirce, the pragmatic maxim is a maxim of logic. Uh, Peirce, like Frege, like Husserl, like others, saw psychologism as a, as a great evil, as something to be resisted. Uh, and you know, he, there, was, there was a time at which whenever he tried to write a logic book or an article about logic, he would begin by explaining how terrible it was when people tried to make use of psychology in studying logic or studying epistemic norms. Um, and I think, therefore, that for Peirce, it's going to be pretty important that the maxim is something that's objectively correct. Uh, and you know, like other logical principles, it can be vindicated in a non-psychological, non-psychologistic kind of way. Right, which would clearly put him at odds with most of William James's very being, in a way. For, yes. you know, <laughs> James is somebody for whom psychology, you know, I'm just thinking now of the the beginning of James's um, pragmatism lectures where um, he, he in fact describes – Maybe it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that he describes the whole history of philosophy as a clash among different psychological temperaments um, between tender-minded people and tough-minded people, and sort of the psychology does all the, you know, explains the philosophy um, for James. Uh, and I could imagine uh, for somebody who opposes psychologism uh, um, in some of the areas where it looks even, you know, more plausible <laughs> that uh, this kind of uh, 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 Psychologism run wild. Uh, uh, it's the source of all explanation. Uh, would would only be infuriating. It seems. There's a very interesting correspondence between Peirce and Dewey. Uh, after Dewey uh, Dewey published a collection of papers about his new approach to logic, and I think it was 1903. Right. Uh, and this was and this was an approach to logic that relied very heavily on Darwinian ideas, mm -hmm. um, and the correspondence between Peirce and Dewey makes it very clear that that Peirce thinks that any make that making any use of evolutionary ideas in doing logic in the way that Dewey wanted to do it was just verboten. I think that, that it was utterly flawed. Right. Um, so l let's pick up on, on this a little bit because um, 
you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, and again, you have a chapter uh, about um, uh, skepticism, which is something uh, that uh, you, you've written on previously. In fact, very, very, in my mind, still one of the very best books on skepticism. Uh, uh, can you tell us, is the pragmatic maxim um, part of an anti-skeptical strategy? How does it fit in? I mean, pragmatists are supposed to be anti-skeptics in, in some very strong sense. Um, in fact, Hillary Putnam says pragmatism is this combination of fallibilism with anti-skepticism. Um, so how does the pragmatic maxim fit into the broader anti-skeptical program of pragmatism? Right. Not an easy question, but I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can, I can do. I mean, I think that there are some connections. Um, well, sorry, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't very good. Let me, let, let me try again. Um, yes, I think there are some connections, but in order to talk about them, first of all, I must say something more general about Perse's attitude towards skepticism. Okay. His, 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 his attitude towards skepticism owed a lot to the fact that, like the other American pragmatists, Peirce was very much influenced by the common sense philosophy by Reed and others. Um, and I think that Peirce's response to skepticism is, I mean, it, it, can, it, it can seem like a, a refusal to take skepticism seriously, um, in that there's a, a paper in which he talks about the Cartesian approach to philosophy uh, and his attitude towards skepticism goes together with an entire rejection of the Cartesian way of doing philosophical issues. Um, the way in which he puts this is that he says that, that, that skeptical doubts of the kind that um, Descartes and others make use of um, are just not to be taken seriously, that we simply can't doubt these sorts of propositions. Uh, you know, so that if, if someone suggests that we're being, um, we're, 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 sorry, I've lost it. Uh, if someone suggests that we're brains in, in vats being, uh, sorry, I'm just losing this completely. Um, if it was su suggested to us that we were veins, that the, if it were to, to, if it were suggested to us that we were brains in vats being deceived about just in, in just about all of our beliefs and opinions, I think that Percy's response was to say, "We that isn't something that we can doubt at all. You know, it's not something that we can we can treat as a matter of serious doubts. Uh, the way in which Cartesian doubts." Is, is, the way in which Cartesian skepticism works is that present that, that people are presented with the challenge that they should give what their reasons are for believing some proposition. What reason do I have to think that I'm holding a pen now? Uh, and if I don't have a good reason for it, then it looks as though that provides me with a reason for suspending judgment or that gives me a reason for, for doubt about this particular belief. Peirce's view, and this goes with the uh, this goes with the common sense approach, mm -hmm. I think, is that most of our beliefs are secure without our having any solid reasons for them. We only need to give to, to actually give reasons for our beliefs 
uh, when we're facing some particular reason for doubting them. So his view seems to be that uh, doubt is the kind of thing that needs a reason. Uh, and we only have to take sceptical doubt seriously if we have very positive, we have, we have really very good reasons for taking those doubts seriously. Um, and so that, so, that, so that in a way, doubts, so that in a way, reasons for doubt are actually more important than reasons for belief. We don't need reason for belief unless there's some sort of reason for doubt that we're, that we're having to defeat in some way. Well, excellent. So is this, um, let me turn now sort of back straightforwardly to, to the maxim because um, Peirce devoted a lot of time and, and, and uh, made several attempts throughout the, the course of his life uh, to give an argument for the maxim, to try to prove, in fact, in fact, he tried to prove the maxim. Um, uh, can you and your book uh, uh, deals with this in various places, and there's a whole chapter on it. The very last chapter is about Peirce's attempts to to give a proof or a demonstration of the correctness or truth of uh, his version of the maxim. Um, can you tell us how those arguments run? Sure, there are four or five. Well, I think that sorry, in the chapter in which I deal with this. Uh, I'm interested in a way more in the strategies that were employed by Peirce in trying to argue for pragmatism than, than trying to get into the details of, of how, the, how the proof or argument was actually to be defended. Um, but I think it's quite interesting to see what some of these strategies are. Uh, when Peirce first defended the maxim, he began by saying, well, look, the aim of inquiry is belief. Uh, and belief is really the, the kind of fundamental cognitive notion that we actually make use of. So if we're going to be clear about the content of a proposition, let's say, it looks as though we have to be clear about what the beliefs would be that would be expressed to that proposition, by, that would be expressed by that proposition. Percy's view is that a belief is a habit of action. So therefore, it would follow from that that if we want to clarify a proposition, we have to be able to describe what the habits of action are that would be that we would have if we believed that proposition. So Percy's first argument for the pragmatic maxim is that one. And it, re it rests on the idea that what we're interested in is belief, and we can clarify a proposition in order to see what habit of action would be involved in believing it. Peirce had some doubts about this proof um, or this argument um, during... Um, one thing that he didn't like about it, I think, was that, that he thought the emphasis upon belief sounded a bit psychologistic as a notion of that sort. Right. And his first step was actually to say that what we should do when, we, when we're trying to clarify a proposition is not so much to, to ask for an explanation of what would be involved in believing it, but rather we, we, we should actually give an account of what should be involved or when it's appropriate for us to, to judge that proposition. 
So he thought that we could come up with an adequate account of judgment, and then we might be able to clarify a proposition by seeing, by studying the logic of the judgment involved. He's quite explicit in using the word the, the logic of judgment in, in thinking about this. So he thought that the best way to think about belief was by thinking about judgment. By 1903, uh, he seemed to be adopting a slightly different strategy. Uh, in fact, one that didn't seem to give a central role to belief or, or, or justification at all. One of the things he seemed to emphasize there was that cognition generally involves inference, reasoning, dealing with arguments. Uh, and he thought that if we're thinking about, if, if we're thinking about the, the kind of clarification of proposition that we should have uh, in order to be clear for cognitive purposes, is to actually see whether the maxim gives us all the information that's relevant to using the proposition inferentially, to using the proposition in argument. And indeed, he argues after a while, he, I mean, he, he thinks that there, there, there are three kinds of arguments, deductive, inductive, and abductive. And he thought that the clue to, to, to defending the, the pragmatic maxim uh, was to actually show that the maxim gave us all the information we needed for using propositions in abductive inference. Mm -hmm. there, there were some other steps of sorry, there were some other arguments he used as, as well towards the end of his life. He began, he, I think he became rather suspicious of grounding the maxim in belief or in judgment or maybe even in inference. I think he, will, he was slightly worried that there are too many different kinds of things that we, that we can do with propositions. Um, and in 1907, he seemed to be arguing that we should, come, we, we, we should try and defend the maxim by, by relate, relating it to understanding directly you know, what's involved in understanding a proposition. Uh, and he tries to argue that we can actually think that we can that, 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 that we can defend the maxim by showing that understanding a proposition has somehow got to involve relating it to a habit of action of some kind, but without doing that by going through the notion of belief or judgment. Right. Um, so let me try to. Um, uh, uh, make uh, or, or to, to, to raise a, a, a related uh, question because um, we know uh, that um, it's, it's often thought that the, the, the origins of pragmatism or the, the, the inauguration of pragmatism, uh, as you said earlier, uh, sort of uh, occurs uh, in these, these two early papers by Peirce that, are, that have to be his most widely read work, uh, the, the Fixation of Belief paper from 1877 and its uh, sequel, as you say, uh, the 1878 paper on how to make our ideas clear. Um, and one of the interesting things about that pair of papers, of course, is that the first, the Fixation of Belief paper, is about what we might call, very broadly speaking now, our epistemic conduct or our, 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 our self-control in forming and maintaining beliefs. Um, and then the, 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 the sequel, as you say, the, the, in fact, Peirce calls it the second part of the first paper, the How to Make Our Ideas Clear paper, is about the, the pragmatic maxim. Uh, and this this rule of logic. Um, could you uh, help make clear to us um, how Peirce saw the pragmatic maxim as fitting in with 
um, his conception of reasoning or of inquiry. Uh, he has this idea that inquiry is a kind of conduct um, and rational inquiry is a kind of – a proper inquiry is a kind of self-controlled uh, conduct. Um, is the maxim uh, central to that conception of control or self-control or um, uh, epistemic conduct? How do these two features of Peirce's pragmatism uh, uh, connect with each other? I think the idea is is this. Um, in the fixation of belief, for example, um, when he's talking about logical sort of matters, uh, he, he focuses primarily on the activity of inquiry. Now, inquiry is a sort of problem-solving activity. Uh, we find something similar in Dewey as well. And I suppose if we're going to be responsible inquirers, uh, we're going to have to ensure that we're using the right rules or the right standards um, in carrying out our in inquiries. Now, inquiry is an, an activity. Uh, Peirce often seems to want to model inquiry on experimentation, often you know, a simple kind of public form of inquiry we can think about is what goes on when people in a laboratory doing experiments, uh, trying to solve problems by testing theories uh, in that sort of way. Now, I think that the pragmatic maxim, I suppose, gives, the hope would be that the pragmatic maxim, if applied to, let's say, a scientific proposition, or indeed to any proposition, ought to provide us with the kind of information we, we need for carrying out that inquiry well. Uh, it gives us the information that's needed for carrying out inquiry, for the information we need for evaluating abductive suggestions or for inductive reasoning and so on. Right. Um, let me then ask the, 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 the sort of further question because um, one of the, the features of Peirce's philosophy for which I think he gets a lot of attention uh, and attention of the negative sort is this very peculiar thought that he has about truth that gets expressed in various ways um, and um, in fact is since uh, I think in a in a in a an unfortunate uh, uh, formulation has sort of found its way into the broader literature on truth where um, the, the the so called end of inquiry conception of truth where it looks as if purse has the following thought that when you apply the pragmatic maxim to propositions uh, that um, contain the truth predicate, you know, P is true, um, what in fact the pragmatic maxim yields is something like the following thought, uh, to, to call a proposition true or to assert that some proposition is true is to make a funny kind of prediction about it, uh, namely that it is the proposition that um, inquirers at some ideal end point of inquiry would all come to agree to adopt. Um, that strikes many philosophers uh, as a, a kind of um, 
uh, uh, well, let's just say a, not a winning thought to have about truth. Um, uh, it seems that it robs truth of the uh, power to explain the convergence, uh, which is um, on, in many minds the more normal way to go about it, that uh, a proposition at the end of properly conducted inquiry comes to be believed because it's true. Uh, it looks as if Peirce wants to say or at least Peirce is suggesting that uh, at the end of properly conducted inquiry, um, uh, the proposition's truth owes to the fact that it's what people would come to believe. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this conception of truth and, and maybe make it seem, I mean, I, I know that you hold that it's more plausible than it sounds. Uh, maybe you can make it sound uh, or show us how it's more plausible than what I uh, uh, believe is the, uh, the popular but caricatured uh, version of the thought. Right, I can... Let me say several things about this. Um, it may be that the proposal sounds strange in the way that you say, uh, if we think that the account of truth that's provided by Peirce in How to Make Our Ideas Clear is being offered in something of the way of a philosophical analysis of some sort, that really is specifying the necessary and sufficient conditions for um, truth. Now, I was quite careful when I was talking about the maxim earlier uh, by describing it as a tool for clarifying concepts or a tool for, for getting a kind of clearer grip of the use of particular propositions. Um, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that in the case of truth, uh, Peirce thinks, well, Peirce says somewhere that, you know, that, that he, he doesn't seem to be offering a general account of what truth is, but he thinks that with respect to any particular case, if you think that some proposition is true, or if you assert that some proposition is true, then well, what you're committed to is the thought that if you inquire into it long enough and well enough, then you'll arrive at a stable belief in that proposition. But you're not going to arrive at the truth if you don't inquire well enough. And we're not going to, you're not going to arrive at the truth if you don't collect enough evidence, if you don't inquire for long enough. Now, that actually sounds all right to me, uh, partly because it actually means that we're in, insisting that for the, for the convergence to occur with respect to the true proposition, then the inference has to be, or sorry, the, the inquiry has to be based on inquiry that makes use of um, normative, of, of the correct normative standards that you're inquiring well. Now, does that satisfy you at all? Not. Well, that well, no, that that sounds um, quite promising. I, I I think you know I have some of these commitments too. Um, so um, th that sounds uh, 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 promising. Um, but there are points where maybe the maybe the the right way to put it is that there are points where Peirce says some unhelpful things in in sort of articulating that thought that you've just. Uh, uh, formulated, especially the in, in the how to make our ideas clear paper, it it, it is characterized as a kind of fate that we're fated uh, uh, to 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 believe uh, uh, what's true at the end of inquiry, and I think that that's a, a kind of distracting thought um, that's a little bit 
more mysterious perhaps than than what you've just characterized does that seem plausible i think so let me let me try two things um sometimes when he's talking about fate what he has in mind about in mind is well look if, if you inquire long enough and well enough then you're fated then simply you're going to end up with a stable belief in the proposition uh the talk about fate may not that's all let me step back a bit yeah on 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 that um i can see that the use of the word fate can be uh troublesome there uh, there is a footnote somewhere where he says what fate is but i forget exactly what he does say about it i think that you know he he seems to feel, he thinks that if if i inquire well enough into this particular material i'm i'm fated to end up with a belief in a particular proposition um and all that means is i will end up with a stable belief in that proposition uh, and if that's if that's offered as a way of uh, clarifying some of the expectations that we have if we accept a proposition involving truth then maybe no maybe it it it's maybe it's not so strange okay. i suppose are, i mean you know there there are people who want to express the person view about truth by saying that really for a proposition to be true what's what's required is that um if we inquire for long enough then we'll we'll eventually arrive at a stable belief which won't be overthrown by further evidence or something like that right now i i know that um one of the um uh, one of the other Persian thoughts that's in the, the 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 very local neighborhood of this thought about truth, uh, which I think also, um, uh, just as you've shown with truth, has a sort of very plausible um, uh, uh, gloss, um, but sometimes Peirce uh, doesn't help himself to the more plausible formulation, um, is that Peirce has some interesting remarks about the community of inquiry and that ultimately it's i mean we so far we've been we've been in fact talking about the, the maxim itself uh as well as these uh, applications of the maxim to questions about inquiry and truth um in individualistic terms um but i take it that uh part of the persian pragmatist program has um some kind of uh what we might think of as sort of epistemic communitarian aspect that ultimately inquiry is a um interpersonal yes uh activity rather than uh an individual activity and in fact um if i'm remembering correctly this is one of the other breaks with Cartesianism that Peirce uh, registers very early in his writing, right? That uh, it's actually a, a, the, the community is the thing that does proper inquiry. One can't, uh, you know, pack up and move to Holland and sit in a room by oneself and do inquiry properly uh, as Descartes had. Um, uh, could you uh, connect for us this, this communal aspect or, or make clear to us the communal aspect of these Persian uh, commitments? I think he certainly thinks that we 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 rely heavily on testimony um that we inquire communally over lots of matters um and so I think he he thinks it's simply a fact that most of our inquirers 
inquiries are carried out in a public sort of manner. Um, but I think it goes further than that because he wants to, I mean, look, when, when he's talking about truth, in most cases when he's talking about truth, what he's really interested in is mind independence. Right. And the talk about convergence for example, or some of the things that you were talking about earlier, are concerned with ways of, un, un, of understanding the mind independence of our opinions. Or the, the, and I guess we do think that if a proposition is true, then it's being true is a mind independent matter. Um, now, Peirce has different views or con considers different views of making sense of mind independence. But I think that the one he wants to make use of most uh, relies on the idea of there being a community. You know, that if a proposition's true, then it's going to turn out that you know, if, if anyone who inquires well enough ends up believing it, then it does look as though the truth of that proposition is independent of what any particular person thinks. Right. Um, so, okay. Um, you you one, don't sound convinced about that. Well, th um, there are um, there are. There are moments uh, uh, where I think Peirce invites a um, a less satisfying uh, uh, reading than what you just provided, where um, and and some um, some critics and in fact even some uh, people who uh, are fans of Peirce have helped them to places where Peirce seems to want to where it looks like he's suggesting that truth is 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 a kind of communal acceptance that, uh, that that some of the community talk looks um, uh, looks like it lends itself to a kind of um, uh, uh, group relativist thought that um, what the community perhaps what my community uh, uh, finds uh, agreeable after it's done enough inquiry to satisfy it uh, that that's what uh, that's what the truth winds up being that there's a kind of relativist um, thought that that per sometimes I think invites um, but the way you've just formulated it sounds again to me uh, 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 plausible um, but um, maybe the thing to say is that purse um, doesn't always uh, help his cause uh, in some of uh, some of the the metaphors in the writing uh, in, in the writing um, would you say that's fair that's fair yes so let me move on then to one again an, another related uh, um, uh, uh, concept within this uh, uh, neighborhood, which is fallibilism. Um, Peirce is a kind of fallibilist. He 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 calls himself a, a, a fallibilist of various kinds in his writing, a contrite fallibilist. Um, uh, what? Uh, how do these thoughts say the maxim, the the conception of uh, of inquiry of Finding things out, and the the, the 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 neighboring thought of truth. How do these fit together into a broadly fallibilist philosophy? Right. Sorry, can I think that? Think about that for a bit. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, In the book, you you are you you're keen to, to in, in both in the introduction and in one of the later chapters, you want to just you, you make a distinction between different kinds of things that fallibilism might mean. Um, 
Right, okay, let me... One story that can be told, which I think connects most of these elements together, uh, is this. Um, Peirce sometimes models inquiry on statistical sampling. Now, suppose that we have a large vat full of um, balls of different colours, and we want to know what proportion of them are white, let's say, and so that we sample hand, lots of hands full, and if we keep on going, uh, we're going to come up with a hope. We hope we're going to come up with the right answer about what proportion of the balls in the vat uh, are white. Now, it's fallible because it may turn out that the next um, ball we, we find turns out to be, sorry, uh, we are fallible because if, if, if we've come up with the expectation that a certain proportion of the balls are, are white, it can turn out that we have some experiences tomorrow or, the, or the, the day after that clash with the result that we've had so far. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose Peirce is committed to thinking that if, if we carry on sampling like that, then we hope, or maybe we're fated. Hope, might, hope may be a better term than fate. Mm -hmm. We can hope that eventually we're going to reach the correct figure for the proportion of the vats that are of, of the balls in the vat that are white, but given the methods we're using, we may not have got there yet. But we can at least feel that we're making use we're making use of, pro, of processes that we hope can take us stably to a better answer. Uh, there's a connection with the pragmatist maxim here, I think, because um, carrying out these tests is going to involve. Uh, evaluating, say, how we should test what the proportion of, um, sorry, go back for a sentence. Um, the pragma, now, going back a couple of sentences. Now, I think Peirce probably thinks that for other kinds of inquiry as well, um, we test hypotheses by sampling examples of the, of the, the results of experiments and things of that kind. Um, and again, if we do this, we'll come up with a plausible sort of answer, but it's open, open, we're open to the possibility that we'll, we'll come up with observations later that will lead us to a, a further provisional result. Uh, and this can just keep on going. But Peirce's claim has to be that in the end, uh, we're fallible. We, we might make a, a, a mistake tomorrow or, or get a, a surprising result over the next few days. But if we keep on inquiring for long enough, we're likely to come up with a kind of stable agreement eventually on the, the answer. Well, excellent. Um, let me ask uh, uh, just one further question about the given. Would that be okay? Yeah, I, sure. Before we started recording, you were you had expressed. I'll just tell our readers you had expressed some. You were just thinking about the given and thinking about what you think about the given. Um, but you do have a chapter about uh, Peirce and um, uh, that discusses Peirce and, and, and Lewis uh, on the myth of the given. Um, 
uh, is person a, uh, a, a myth, a given mythist or, uh, what, 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 what is a Persian view about, uh, about the given? It's a difficult question to answer. Um, and, and you're asking me about what Peirce would think about this or about what Lewis would think about this. Well, I'm asking you about what Peirce would think about it. I mean, we could talk about Lewis, but I, I think we know what Lewis uh, would think. Yeah. Okay. Peirce, when Peirce is talking about, now let me, we're thinking about perceptual judgments, I take it, in this sort of context. Uh, and when people talk about the given, what they often have in mind is that the idea that we have to infer our beliefs about the external world from beliefs about the given, and somehow or other we have to arrive at information about what the given is like. Now, Percy's views about perception seem to be fairly clear. Uh, he thinks that a perceptual judgment um, always involves an element of inference. Um, I, mean, I, th I think he thinks that, uh, that, that when I perceive something, then this always involves uh, applying uh, concepts or somehow conceptualizing the, the things that we actually see. Um, I mean, he, he, uh, so he thinks that perceptual judgments, he sometimes describes a perceptual judgment as the limiting case of an inference or of an abductive inference. Um, and so he thinks that perceptual judgments and also the perceptual experience are affected by um, concepts and, and, and therefore by a sort of inferential character. Peirce uh, often makes use of examples of the Schroeder, sorry, one of Peirce's PhD students, I think in, I'm not sure where, if, sorry, one of Peirce's students was Jan Jastrow, the right. Who did, a, who did a PhD with him on perception. Now, Yastrow is perhaps famous for many philosophers, to, to, to many philosophers now, for his use of the duck rabbit kind of example. But I think it's interesting that Peirce in his writings about perception doesn't use that example, but he uses other kinds of examples, such as the one about when you, you, you have the Schroeder stair and you can either see the stair going up or going down. Mm -hmm. um, and this is present there in the visual experience. Um, and Peirce's claim is that in those sorts of cases, you know, how things look to us uh, is, is influenced by the concepts that we've actually applied to them. Um, so perception has, is, is going to have that sort of character, that it's going to be inferential it's going to reflect the experiences that we have. It's certainly going to be fallible. Uh, and, the, and the kind of sensuous character that the experience has will reflect the concepts that we bring to bear in thinking about it consciously or more likely unconsciously. Right. So that sounds then that Peirce would have a, a view of the given, which, you know, is much in line with uh, you know, uh, subsequent um, 
pragmatist thoughts. I'm thinking particularly of some of the stuff in Lewis and then, of course, in Sellers, that the given, um, particularly as it's sometimes appealed in other kinds of empiricist work, is uh, as sort of unconceptualized content or the, the the foundation from which inferences can be drawn but are not but are, is not arrived at through inference itself um, that this is a kind of uh, uh, mythology or a, a something that is uh, is, is better uh, removed from uh, the naturalist empiricist uh, program um, right great okay. um, so, Chris, you've been very generous with your time. Um, uh, one of the questions I ask at the end uh, is, uh, what what are you up to next? I'm not quite sure which way I want to go. I've been, I'm beginning to get interested in pragmatist ethics, and in mm. particular at some of Josiah Royce's writings on ethics. I, I'm interested in Royce partly because... Uh, I think Peirce described Royce as the pragmatist whose views were closest to his own. Right. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of Royce's work that hasn't yet been appreciated. But it's particularly some of his working in ethics that I'm thinking about a bit at the moment. But having spent quite a lot of time working on this book, um, I don't have a definite idea about what I'm going to do next. Well, I will I will keep an eye out uh, and 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 find out what you're going to do next, the good old fashioned way, by uh, uh, keeping an eye out for what happens next. Um, but for now, uh, I just wanted to thank you uh, once again uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy and to talk about your book, The Pragmatic Maxim: Essays on Purse and Pragmatism. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Christopher Hookway of the University of Sheffield. We were talking about his new book, The Pragmatic Maxim, newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.